Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Pentecost. A great and festive day in the church year, to be sure. Yet we often forget that the Pentecost we hear about in our second lesson today was by no means the first Pentecost. The children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been celebrating it for over 14 centuries by the time of Christ and his apostles. The word means 50th, and there are 50 days between the Passover week's Sabbath and Pentecost. It's also the 50th day since the Feast of Firstfruits, one of the Jewish festivals that the Lord God established during the Israelites' Old Testament wandering. The Feast of Firstfruits always took place on the day of the Sabbath following Passover, which means it was always on the first day of the week. If Pentecost then was 50 days later, seven weeks plus one day, then Pentecost also took place on the first day of the week, a Sunday like today. We Christians assemble and worship on Sunday, the first day of the week, chiefly because on that day our Lord Jesus rose from the dead. But we mustn't forget that Sunday was also the day on which the Holy Spirit was given to the church and the day that its mission of making disciples of all nations began in earnest. These Jewish feasts, found in Leviticus chapter 23, are a parallel of the work of salvation accomplished by Jesus Christ. To fully comprehend Pentecost, we need to back up a bit to the first of these appointed feasts. At the Passover, you may recall, an unblemished lamb was sacrificed as a commemoration of the first Passover in Egypt. The lamb's blood, smeared on the lintels and doorposts of the Israelites' homes, had provided protection from the angel of death. Passover, Passover is a type or a forerunner of Jesus' own death as the Lamb of God. You remember what John the Baptist had said to his followers about Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul later wrote in 1 Corinthians, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The day after the Passover Sabbath, the day which became for us Easter Sunday, was the Feast of Firstfruits. And it was on this day that Jesus rose from the dead and became the firstfruits of them that had fallen asleep, as Paul told the Corinthians in explaining the resurrection. To celebrate the goodness of God and giving them a harvest in the promised land, the priest was to wave a sheaf of grain before the Lord. But things were different on Pentecost. On this day, the priest would wave loaves of bread. But unlike the Passover bread made without yeast to remember the haste with which the Israelites had left Egypt, the Pentecost bread is leavened bread. It would be relatively easy for us to physically distinguish between the sheaves of grain waved before the Lord at the Jews' Feast of Firstfruits and the two loaves of leavened bread waved at Pentecost. But it's a bit more challenging to pick up the parallels to Christ's work in these physical representations. 
We certainly have to be cautious about using analogies that aren't given to us explicitly by the scriptures, of course. But as long as we don't call him a type of Christ, we can still find them useful to illustrate things. Try to think about it in this way. The first fruit sheaves were made up of many stalks of grain, each with many individual grains that made up their heads. But in the Pentecost loaves, the many grains have been broken down, ground and mixed together, and then fused by the heat of the oven into one single entity. For us, for us, the Feast of Pentecost pictures the formation of the church. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit baptized the believers and united them into one body. There was leaven in the Pentecost loaves, just there, as there will be the leaven of sin present in the church on earth. The church will not be perfect until it gets to heaven. We must not conclude that these ten days of praying that Jesus' followers did following his ascension somehow brought about the miracles of Pentecost, or that today we should pray to experience another Pentecost of that sort. Like our Lord's death at Calvary, that Pentecost was a once-and-for-all event that will not be repeated. We would not ask for another Pentecost for the Spirit any more than we would ask for another Calvary for Christ. What God has done in that Pentecost recorded in Acts 2 is as fully sufficient for the church as was Christ's death on the cross. As we consider the events of Pentecost, it's important that we separate the incidentals from the essentials. What's important to realize about Pentecost that it is all God's doing, not ours. The Spirit came, and the people heard a sound like a rushing wind and saw a tongue similar to fire. The Spirit baptized and filled the believers, and the Spirit spoke through them as they spoke in various languages. The Spirit empowered Peter to preach, and the Spirit convicted the listeners and gave them faith so that 3,000 of them recognized Jesus as the Christ and were saved. The Holy Spirit had certainly been active prior to Pentecost. He had worked creation, moving over the face of the waters on the unformed earth. The Spirit had acted in Old Testament history too. For example, moving Gideon to lead the Israelites to victory and coming upon David when he was anointed to be king over Israel. The Spirit was present and active in the life and ministry of Jesus too. In His conception, at His baptism, leading Him into the desert and supporting Him in His temptation, and of course in His preaching and in His miracles. However, at this Pentecost from Acts 2, there would be two significant changes in how the Spirit would be made manifest to God's people. First, the Spirit would dwell within people and not just come upon them. And the Spirit's presence would remain with those who believe. The Spirit could not have come any sooner than Pentecost, for it is essential that Jesus die, be raised from the dead, and return to heaven before the Spirit be given. Remember that Jewish calendar in Leviticus 23. First comes the Passover, then first fruits, and then Pentecost. 
there were three startling signs that accompanied the coming of the Spirit. The sound of a rushing wind, tongues that appeared like fire, and the believers praising God in many languages. It is possible, perhaps even probable, that the believers were on the grounds of the temple when this event occurred, since they spent so much of their waking time following Jesus' ascension just there. The word house, which is used in Acts 2, can refer to the temple as it does in Acts 7 and elsewhere. It is certainly more likely that they would have attracted the attention of the large throng of Pentecost pilgrims there than if they were isolated somewhere in a small dwelling on a narrow side street of Jerusalem. This sound and these tongues were indications of the coming of the Holy Spirit, the baptizing of the Spirit which Jesus had promised to His disciples before His ascension. The Greek word baptizo has two meanings, one literal, one figurative. The word literally means to submerge, but the figurative meaning is to be identified with. And the baptism of the Spirit on that Pentecost is that act by which God identified those believers with the exalted head of the church, Jesus Christ. By being identified with Him, they were formed into the spiritual body of Christ here on earth. The filling of the believers with the Holy Spirit whether this comes as it did on this Pentecost or as it comes to us today through word and sacrament is always both miraculous and God-given. This filling provides us with faith and it gives us power for acts of witness and acts of service, just as it did the apostles and the other early believers. We are not exhorted to be baptized by the Spirit for this is something God does once and for all when we are first brought to faith through the means that He has given us. But we are certainly commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit, for we need His power constantly if we are to serve God effectively. These Christians experienced the baptism of the Spirit and were filled with the Spirit. After that day, they experienced no more baptisms of the Spirit, but they received many other fillings which enabled them to serve Christ from that day forward. The baptism of water and the Spirit by which you received at the font means that you now belong to Christ's body. Likewise, the fullness of the Spirit dwelling within you means that as His child, your newborn body and soul now belong to Him and to His bride, the Holy Mother, the Church. Your baptism is a one-time thing, but its fullness is repeated each time you remember it, turning in repentance to Christ's throne of grace, trusting God once again for the new power to be His faithful witness. Our baptism into the Holy Spirit, by necessity, is both individual and communal. It certainly is applied to each of us individually as God's gift to us. Yet it also involves all other believers, for it unites us as one in that body of Christ. The fullness of the Spirit is personal and individual too, yet enables us to work together with Christ and with His church for the furtherance of His kingdom. Have you ever noticed that what the Jews from these many lands heard from the believers speaking initially, 
was not the proclamation of the gospel, but rather praises of God? More importantly, and contrary to the experience that many insist is necessary to demonstrate that one has faith and has gifts of the Spirit, these believers used known languages, not some unknown tongue. St. Luke names 15 different geographical locations, and he clearly stated that the citizens of these places heard Peter and the others declare God's marvelous works in languages they could understand. The Greek word translated as language here in Acts 2.6 and as tongue in Acts 2.8 is dialectos and refers to a language or a dialect of some specific country or district. This wasn't some sort of gibberish or a strange special spirit language. It was meant by God to be understood by those to whom his message would be revealed, just as he has revealed his word to us in human language. This means by which the apostles spoke these languages was certainly extraordinary, but the languages themselves were familiar to the hearers. Why did God do this? For one thing, Pentecost was a reversal of the judgment of the Tower of Babel where God had confused man's language. God's judgment at Babel scattered the people, but God's blessing at Pentecost united the believers in one spirit. At Babel, the people were unable to understand one another, but at Pentecost, men heard God's praises and fully understood what was said. The Tower of Babel was a human scheme designed to glorify men, but Pentecost brought praise to God. The building of Babel was an act of rebellion, but Pentecost was a ministry of humble submission to God. What a marvelous contrast. Another reason for these gifts of tongues was to let the people know that the gospel was for the whole world. God wants to speak to every person in his or her own language and to give them the saving message of salvation in Christ Jesus. The emphasis in the book of Acts is on worldwide evangelization. To the ends of the earth, as Jesus had instructed many of these same believers only ten days previously. Apparently, the sound of the wind drew the people to where the believers were gathered. But it was the praise of the believers that really captured their attention. The careless listeners mocked them and accused the believers of being drunk. But others were sincerely concerned to find out just what it was that was going on. The people were perplexed. The people were amazed and they marveled. And what's more, it seems that there must have been at least a few Lutherans among that crowd. For in their amazement, they asked each other, what does this mean? Peter then got up and addressed the crowd. Whether his sermon to the crowd was given in a single language that many of them would have understood, such as Greek or Aramaic, or if his speech too was miraculously heard by everyone in their native language, we do not explicitly know. What's important in understanding Pentecost is not the means of this communication, but the message, faithfully preserved and accurately communicated just as we have received it in the Scriptures. This was a message given by a Jew to Jews on a Jewish holy day 
about the resurrection of the Jewish Messiah whom their nation had crucified. To those who, would, who were there and who would listen, Peter explained the significance of what it was that they were seeing and hearing. The joyful worship of the believers was not the result of too much wine. It was evidence of the arrival of God's Holy Spirit to dwell in His people. Peter points these Jews to the prophecy of Joel, who had written of some of the signs and wonders that would be seen as the end times approached. Peter did not say that Pentecost was the fulfillment of the prophecy, because all of the signs and wonders that Joel had predicted had not yet occurred. Yet it was known to these Jews that the day of the Lord would indeed one day come, and that only those who called on the name of the Lord would be saved. Peter was led by the Spirit to see that the prophecy of Joel had an application to the church. Peter was saying, in essence, this is the same Holy Spirit that Joel wrote about. The Spirit is now here. Such an announcement would seem incredible at first to the Jews because they thought that God's Spirit was only given to a select few. But here there were 120 of their fellow Jews, men and women alike, enjoying the blessing of the same Holy Spirit that had empowered Moses and David and the prophets. It would only be later, after Peter went on to give an account of the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, that many of them would be convicted by the law and would receive the gospel to their salvation. This Pentecost was indeed the dawning of a new age, the last days in which God would bring to completion His plan of salvation for mankind. Jesus had finished the great work of redemption, and nothing more need be done except to share this good news with the world, beginning with the nation of Israel. The invitation with which Peter concludes the first portion of this Pentecost account is, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Rejoice this festive day then, for God has spoken to you in language that you can understand. He has baptized you with the Spirit in water and in word, and, in, and united you in the body of Christ, in this Holy Mother, His Bride, the Church. Though you too had your sinful role in handing Christ over to be crucified, the Holy Spirit has convicted you of your offenses with God's word of law. You have repented, and His gospel promise is for you and for your children and all who have, are far off. It has been offered, it has been received. Come then, be filled not with the leavened bread and new wine, but with the bread and wine that bestow upon you the body and blood of your Savior. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. In that holy name of Jesus, amen.